0: Thank you very much, Matt, for leading us this morning. That was great. Once again, my name is Shane Cowell, and it's a joy to be with you this morning, uh, to have the opportunity to speak to you and uh, just to look to God's Word this morning. Um, and as we do that, let's just ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word this morning, Lord, that it might challenge us, that it might penetrate our hearts, and that it might ultimately lead us to change and lead us to obedience, that we might follow you, serve you, and that we might spread your word so that others might come to know you as the Lord and Savior. And this is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we are right in the middle of our 40 Days of Love campaign, uh, 40 days seems like a long time to focus on one aspect of character, of how we're supposed to treat each other. So my question this morning is simply, why? You know, what's the big deal about love? Why is loving others so important? You know, why aren't we focusing on on joy or on some other characteristic or aspect that we see in Scripture? What is so special about love? Well, I think God's Word makes it incredibly clear to us that there is something special about love. Um, and in 1st John the apostle John shows us very clearly that love above all other things is the quintessential evidence of salvation. So why is love so important? It's very simple because if you claim to be a Christian, the way that you exhibit love is the quintessential. It's the most important evidence that we have of our salvation. Turn with me in your Bibles if you would to 1 John chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. I'll give you a second to turn there. The apostle John says this. He says, "Whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother "...abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness... Has blinded his eyes. From our text here, you'll notice this contrast between light and darkness. You know, back in one John chapter one and verse five, it says that God is light, and in verse seven, we are encouraged as believers to walk in this light. And here in our text, in verses nine through eleven, we see that light. To be in light is really to be in fellowship and to be in union with God. If God is light, then for us to be in the light is to be in Christ, to be in fellowship and union with God through salvation. By contrast... To be in darkness is to be exclusively in the realm of sin. John says that to be in darkness is to be blinded. This is the state in which every single one of us reside in before salvation, completely blinded by our sin. But I want you to notice here how John paints these two places as exclusive, meaning that they are the exact opposite of one another. I would submit to you that John is stating to us very clearly that you are either in light or you are in darkness. You can't be in both. You know, so often we get this idea... That as a Christian, since we are still, uh, since we still sin, that we are kind of a mixture of good and bad. We are kind of a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness. But John paints this picture that you can only be one or the other. You are in the, either in Christ and therefore in the light, or you are either in darkness and still blinded by sin. One cannot be in both. Places. And so John very clearly sets up for us this litmus test. You know, how do we know which place we are in? We know that we can only be in one or the other. How do we know which place we are in? What is the best evidence for us to know, to have assurance? of where we reside and that is love love the way that we love others is the best evidence that we have that we are either in light if we love well or if love is absent from our lives then we are in darkness we can only be one or the other and the and our best assurance of our salvation is whether or not we love. Go ahead and and flip over to chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 of 1 John. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Now catch this, because God is love. God is love. John tells us very simply that love is not just a part of who God is, it is who God is. John also tells us that whoever loves is born of God and knows God because God is love. But if you do not love, if love is absent from your life, then the Bible tells us very clearly that we have not been born of God. You know, I am a complete mama's boy. I love my mother. She still spoils me to this day. Uh, My wife will probably attest to the fact that she's in competition with my mom, sometimes for my affection. Um, When I'm sick, you know, I certainly look to my wife for some pampering, but I still call my mom. You know, I just want to hear her say it's going to be okay. You know, I... I'm 27 years old. I've been on my own for a long time, but I still look to my mom. And, uh, but um, I look a lot like my dad. Uh, my voice sounds very similar to my dad. Ever since I was a young boy, when I would answer the phone, people thought it was my dad. Uh, so I look like my dad. I sound like my dad. Um, I react to certain situations, whether good or bad, a lot like my dad. I do a lot of things like my dad. And uh, one of the stories that my dad loves to tell, uh, to kind of reminisce on, is when I was probably about uh, a year and a half, two, maybe two and a half, and we had a snowstorm, a big snowstorm, very similar to what we have now, which I'm getting sick of, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad used to love to take me out in the snow. And so uh, he was walking in the snow, and he looked back, And he saw that I was way back there, and I was walking very, very gingerly, very, very gingerly in the snow. And my dad turned around, and he said, Shane, what are you doing? And I said, Dad, I want to step where you step. I was trying to step in the footprints that he made. Why? Because he was my dad. You know, he was my greatest hero. I wanted to do everything like my dad did. I'm still that way. I still look to my dad as a great example for my life. And so I look like my dad. I talk like my dad. I act like my dad. I want to please my dad. And you you see, if you are born of God, God is your heavenly father. We should have a resemblance to who he is. Now, we're not going to act exactly like God because we're not God. He is divine. There is no sin found in God. He created us, not vice versa. But I want to challenge you this morning that if God is your heavenly father and if we look to our dads, especially us men, for example, and we act like them because we are their flesh and blood, we are born of them. Then how much more should we exhibit the characteristics of our heavenly father? How much more should we want to be obedient to our heavenly father? How much more should we want to love the world like our Heavenly Father does? And so this morning, I want to encourage you. I don't want to uh, you know, have you sitting there and just simply questioning your salvation, but I want to challenge you. Do you love like your Heavenly Father does? Do you show the love of Christ that He has shown you to others? I would submit to you that... This is the evidence that we have to the world that we are the children of God. We don't have any other evidence, right? We can say whatever we want, but if we don't love, then we're not showing the world that we have been changed by God. And so you might ask, well, I know I'm supposed to love others because God is love, and I say that I love Him, but how do I do that? You know, what does that look like practically? Well, thankfully, God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our perfect example here on earth of what love is. He modeled it perfectly before our very eyes. And so this morning, I want to show you three ways that we can love others like Jesus first loved us. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. We'll be in, in 1 John pretty much exclusively this morning. First John chapter 2 and verse 12, the Apostle John says, I am writing to you little children. This is a, an endearing term that John often um, assigns to the believers and who he is writing, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You know, have you ever been around people that uh, whenever something bad happens in their life, they say something like, oh, God is mad at me, or, oh, well, God's trying to get back at me for all the bad things I've done. Maybe even sometimes you think that way, um, that b- bad things are happening in your life because God has a grudge against you. I mean, is that really how God relates to us? Is that really how He interacts with His children? No. In fact, it's just the opposite. You see, everything that you've done wrong, all of your shortcomings, all of your inadequacies were put on Christ, and He bore them on the cross so that you did not have to, so that all of us can experience eternal life and new life in Christ. Instead of getting the death that we deserve, we get life in Christ through repentance and faith. You see, God is a forgiving God. And so therefore, we should forgive others who have wronged us. We should forgive those who have wronged us. You see, we don't have to pay for our sins. They have already been paid for if you know Christ. In Matthew 26 and 28, a very uh, popular passage that we read around the Lord's Supper, it says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. You see, thankfully, Christ came to earth and He died on our behalf on the cross. He paid for our sins so that we might experience eternal forgiveness. If we know Him. If we if we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you haven't repented and accepted Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to know that no matter what you have done, no matter how bad you have been in the past, no matter how much there is in your life that needs to be forgiven, you are not beyond the forgiveness of God. You are not beyond the forgiveness of God. You know... You are not out of reach. There is an incredible forgiveness that God offers each and every one of us if we will repent and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've experienced the forgiveness of sins through Christ, if you've truly been forgiven and cleansed of your sin and passed from death into life, how hypocritical would it be for us to hold grudges against others? I mean, if Jesus can come in the human flesh and die on our behalf, and if God can say, I am satisfied, my wrath has been satisfied, Satisfied. I forgive you for all of eternity for all of the sin that you have done before me. If God can do all of that and forgive us of all of that, can we not forgive our fellow brothers in Christ and even others who deserve so little forgiveness before us? How can we say that we know Christ, that we have been forgiven by Christ, that we have been cleansed by Christ, and yet we can't forgive others? I would submit to you that as a Christian, you should never harbor bitterness, you should never be holding back forgiveness. You know, I don't want you to be like the woman that I heard about recently. She was bitten by a rabid dog, and it looked as though she was going to die from rabies. So the doctor told her to put her final affairs in order. And so the woman took a pen and paper and began to write feverishly. For hours and hours, she was writing and writing and writing. And finally, the the doctor said, man, that sure is a long will you're making. And she snorted and kind of laughed and said, will nothing. I'm making a list of all the people I want to bite. You know, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to devise a plan of how you can get back at others. You see, the, uh, the Word of God says the very opposite. The Apostle Paul in Colossians says that we should bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, we forgive each other. Why, Paul says? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You know, once you recognize that God has forgiven you, then each and every one of us become enabled to forgive others who wrong us. Friends, this is a command. It's not something that is optional. If you are in Christ, then we need to be obedient to the commands of God. One of those is to forgive those who trespass um, upon us. Secondly, if we are to love like Jesus does, then we must place a high value on others. We must place a high value on others. Look with me at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. John says, "See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him." And so we are to place a high value on others. Flip over real fast to chapter 4 verses 10 through 14. John says, and we read this earlier in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And so, I want you to think about how much God values you. You know, we can't explain it. We can't we can't comprehend it, but God has placed a value on you and on me that is higher than we can even comprehend. Now, I don't want us to get prideful because the Bible is clear that we were born in sin, that we were blinded by our sin. In us was nothing found good. And so this value that God places on us, what is so neat is that it's not even based on anything that we've done. This incredible value is based on the unmerited favor of God. He didn't look on us and see anything good, but he chose to love us and to value us simply because he wanted to. God chose to love us simply out of his good pleasure. And so how much does God value us? Well, we can see four ways in which God values us. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created us in his own image. We are made in the very image of God. Secondly, we've already seen that Christ died for you. Third, at salvation, the Lord Jesus actually puts the very spirit of God within you as a guide and as a means of sanctification. And then finally, God desires for you to be in heaven for all of eternity with him. That's a pretty high value. You know, we were on our path to hell, but God intervened on our behalf because he valued us. And he saved us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us in obedience. And ultimately, we are going to be in heaven with God for all of eternity. That is an incredible value. You see, John, in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says that we should see what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children or the sons of God. You know that God actually values us so much that he reaches out and he adopts us. As his own children, we become the very sons and the very daughters of God. We are a part of the family of God. You see, this is not just simply a title. We are truly his. He treats us as his children. And I wonder if this morning, if we really look around at those sitting next to us, and we really see others as fellow heirs of Christ, if we really see others as fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, as fellow children of God, as people that have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God, do we value each other like that? You know, I would submit to you that if we really did, perhaps we would treat each other better. Perhaps our relationships would look different. Perhaps there wouldn't be near as many lawsuits between Christians. Perhaps... Uh, our church would be even taken to a next level in our godliness and in our biblical community if we truly valued others the way that God values us. You know, perhaps we would look differently at a man who would walk into our midst this morning dressed in rags, maybe even had an odor, smelled of alcohol and tobacco, and looked a lot different than we do. Would we really value that person and look at him as being fearfully and wonderfully made? Perhaps our outreach would look different. You know, the underprivileged, those who have physical or or mental handicaps, those that we consider lower in society, those that a lot of us, if we were to be honest, we often just pass right over. We kind of thumb our nose up at them. But if we believe that they have been fearfully and wonderfully made, then it would change the way that we valued people. You see, if you understand the value that God has put on you, it changes the way we value others. And so, We've seen that if we are really children of God and we really want to love others as Christ first loved us, then we need to forgive those who have wronged us, we need to place a high value on others, and then finally, very simply, we need to serve others sacrificially. We need to serve others sacrificially. You see, this is where love really becomes practical. Look with me at John or I, I'm sorry, at first John chapter three, verses 16 through 18. The Apostle John says this, By this we know that He, Christ, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk only, but in deed and in truth. You know, you might say, you know, all right, it's going to be tough, but I think I can forgive others. It's going to be tough, but I think I can value others. But now you're telling me, That I have to make real sacrifices? You know, all of a sudden, love doesn't become near as appealing to us because we actually have to step outside of our comfort zone. You see, love, if you truly love as Christ does, it will cost you. It will cost you because love in its truest form is sacrificial. You see, the Scriptures tell us here that the greatest act of love that mankind has ever seen was an incredible sacrificial love. Jesus, who knew no sin, left perfect communion in heaven with the Father. You see, see, the Bible literally paints this picture that Jesus had face-to-face communion, equal footing with the Father in heaven. John chapter 1 tells us that. That He was in perfect communion with God, and yet He stooped all the way down to the level of man. You see, the incarnation is not simply where Jesus became a man, but we need to realize what Jesus left behind in heaven. He didn't leave His attributes behind, but He left His status and His glory behind in heaven. He left all of that to come and to sacrificially lay down His life for us. The world has never seen an act of love like that, ever. And if we are to model Christ and we are to love others like Christ loves us, then we need to sacrificially love others. We can't love in word and in deed only, but we need to love in our actions. This is the supreme act of love that Christ would lay down His life on our behalf. Now, fortunately for many of us, we live in a culture where we're probably not going to be asked to literally lay down our lives for anyone. Some of us may. But for the majority of us, this is not, in its most literal sense, very practical for us because we're just not confronted with this very often. You know, a lot of missionaries are, but for us, we're just not confronted with this very often. And so we see this supreme example of love that Christ has for us. But in verses 17 and 18, John gives us very, uh, he shows us sacrificial love in a very practical sense. I want to read this just one more time. Verses 17 and 18, he says, But if anyone has the world's deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, sacrificial love is action oriented, not just words. One commentator that I read had this to say, he said, the apostle challenges his readers to understand that love is more than making a good speech. John is not condemning these kinds of comforting words. The expression of of utterances, now catch this, without an outward manifestation of them, however, is mere noise and therefore worthless. For far too long, The majority of us in the church have only loved with our words and not with our hands. You see, we often see those in distress and we say, Well, brother or sister, you know. I'll be praying for you or you'll be on my thoughts this week. But how many of us love in a tangible way, in a way that they can feel, in a way that they can see? How many of us go to their house and get our hands dirty and lend a helping hand? How many of us prepare a meal or cut a check to those in our midst that might have financial needs? Love, if it's going to be sacrificial, if it's going to be love like Christ showed us, needs to cost us. It needs to be outward. It needs to be tangible. It needs to be modeled. You see, sacrificial love is to donate your time to a brother and sister in need. It's to provide financial means or to provide a meal or to donate your time to a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen. It's to provide physical or financial aid to the more than 925 million people in this world who are undernourished or starving to death. That's what sacrificial love is. It reaches out and it does something. Or it's to hop on a plane and visit one of the more than 3,400 unreached, unengaged people groups of this world who have never had a gospel witness before them. That is sacrificial love. Or even better, it's to go and give your life to world missions or to missions in your community. Sacrificial love needs to cost us. Love is getting personally involved. Listen, if our Savior can come to earth and provide this incredible sacrifice and this incredible example and give up so much for you and for me, how can we not give up so little for the world and for our brothers and sisters in Christ? I want to encourage you that the next time that sacrificial love looks so difficult that it looks as though it's going to be so hard to accommodate this need that somebody else has, I want you to look to the cross of Christ. Look at this sacrifice that he made for you and for me, and boy, it makes our sacrifices for others look puny. It's almost embarrassing that we have to agonize over making these sacrifices for others. You see, it should encourage us that we have never arrived in our ability and in our Sanctifi- and in our sanctification. We have never arrived in our ability to love others because our example is not the hateful world. Our example is Christ. And if he truly is our example, we always have more to shoot for. We always have a goal that we have not yet attained. We always can love better. And so as we close this morning, I want to leave you with words of one of my favorite hymns. It's super, super old. I know I'm only 27 years old. I'm a young guy. I should like all kinds of hip hop and and all kinds of stuff. And I do, I do like some of those genres, but I love some of the classic hymns of the church because for a lot of them, there are lyrics that are so rich that we often just don't have in a lot of our modern songs. And this song is called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross by my favorite hymn writer, Isaac Watts. And in the third and fourth verse of this song, it says, see from his head his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or Thorns composed, so rich a crown. And I want you to hear this last verse. Were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had it all, that, were, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. And so my prayer this morning is simply this for all of us. That you will allow the amazing, the divine, and the, in- and the incomprehensible love of Christ that he has showed to each and every one of us. I pray that you will allow this to lead you in giving our lives to Christ by loving and serving others. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, Father. Uh, We confess, Lord, that uh, we don't always love well. We don't always model you to the world very well. And I pray, Father, that you would grow each and every one of us in this area. I pray that you would lead us all to looking to you and not to any other role model to see what true sacrificial love looks like. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. At this time, I'd like to invite uh, those helping us with the offering as well as the worship team back up front.